don't know if you've noticed this, but the culture is awash with sex. All right, it's on the TV, it's in movies, it's on the internet and social media, it's in the songs on the radio, in the magazines, on the shelves, in the newsagents, on billboards, on adverts, uh, in the shops. It seems that everybody is talking about sex from daytime TV to late night chat shows. The world seems obsessed with the topic and it's impossible for us as Christians to live in this world without being bombarded by the world's view of sex. But on the other hand, Christians, the topic is a little bit taboo. It's a private matter and intensely personal, and that is right. And there's a degree of awkwardness and discomfort in talking about it. So uh, who thought, oh my goodness, he's going to address this topic this morning? And who thought, oh no, cover the ears of my children quickly? You know, because it's not something that is for polite conversation, we think. Christians have a reputation for being Puritan or Victorian in our approach to sex, that we have a sexual stuffiness. And so we take two approaches. Either we retreat behind the barricades and we say that we will make sure that this is a subject that never crosses our lips and should just stay in the bedroom. And that approach doesn't do justice to the biblical view of sex. Or the other approach is that we embrace the candidness of the world and we try to keep up and we end up idolizing it just like the culture does and it swamps in on us and it begins to shape the way that we think about this topic now the bible says that sex is a good thing and it's made by god and it's something that god gave to humanity to be embraced and to be enjoyed within the specific uh context and design sorry my lectern is falling over within the specific context and design of marriage between one man and one Woman, marital sex between a husband and wife is to be celebrated. In fact, if you were to turn to the book of the Song of Solomon, you will find a whole book dedicated to the topic with content that makes people blush when they realize it's in the Bible. All right. Now, likewise, Corinthians chapter six and chapter seven is going to do the same. It's going to help us to understand God's view of sex. And he's going to provide us with a robust and positive and healthy view about how the gospel should inform our understanding and practice of this. And if we can't talk about it as a church, well, we're going to learn it from somewhere. So better to do it under the authority and teaching of God's word. Now, a couple of things before I begin. I'm A, aware that what I'm going to be saying from these two chapters uh, is going to rub up against what the world says sex is for and how sex is to be practiced. And that's okay because God's word is true and timeless and so we can trust it. But I'm also aware that there are people in many different situations, children who are present this morning, who uh, undoubtedly will have questions around the dinner table. So good luck with that, you parents. I'll try and keep it as PG rated as possible. Then there are singles who would love to be married and embrace this gift. And there are singles who have been married and are no longer married who may be missing out or feel that they're missing out on this intimacy. Then there are married couples who are at various stages of married life, from fairly newlyweds to those who've been married for 50 plus years. And there are people in our congregation with various degrees of baggage from past sexual sin that they just can't shake. And so, gonna proceed with caution, proceed with hopefully compassion and clarity and courage. And so please don't switch off if you're in the room and certainly if you're at home. 
uh, my desire is to see God's word shape our thinking about this topic and then the Holy Spirit transform our living concerning this topic. And what we'll see as we move through Corinthians 6 and 7 is we'll see that God's view and God's standard for sex is higher than we think. And also that our union with Christ is more important to this topic than perhaps we first thought. Now in today's passage we're going to see one particular uh, exhortation, a strong exhortation, and that is summed up in verse 20 of chapter 6 where Paul says, glorify God in your body. That's the title of my message, so let's read what God has to say through Paul from verse 12 of chapter 6. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. No, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. But the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Do you not know that you are members of Christ, that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person, sexually immoral person, sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. God's word to us. Well, Paul begins in verse 12 through 17, addressing a very, uh, another very difficult topic uh, of, of conversation, a situation in the Corinthian church where members of the church were going to visit prostitutes. Now, it's not that they were going out to the red light district of Corinth and, and visiting brothels as we might associate prostitution in the 21st century, but they were going to pagan temples that littered the streets and the boroughs of Corinth, of Corinth and they were going there uh, as part of pagan worship practices. And the practice of doing this kind of thing was much more culturally and socially acceptable than it is today. In fact, in the ancient Near East, if you were to take a wife you would see that joining as being for very strategic purposes. You would say, well, there's social benefit or business benefit or political alliances and advantages of marrying into this particular family. Or you would say, well, my wife is for bearing children and for bearing an heir to my fortune. But they were not viewed as, uh, wives are not viewed for pleasure. So it was customary that people, that, uh, people would go to the temple to engage in the cultural sexual progressiveness of the day. And that was beginning or had crept into the church to the effect that Paul tells us that some of the Corinthian Christians were continuing to indulge themselves and sought to justify their behavior. And Paul engages the issues by interacting with, with slogans, with sayings that the Corinthians were obviously using to support their sin. And that's in verses 
uh, in verse 12, where it's in sort of quotation marks where they're saying, all things are lawful for me. So that basically, he says they were using this argument, all things are lawful for me, or basically they believed that in Jesus they had total and absolute freedom, meaning that they were free from the law, meaning that they were free from all restraint, meaning that they were free from all restrictions, and they had a sort of unqualified liberty to do whatever they wanted to do. All things are lawful for me. I'm legally, uh, well, I'm at liberty to do whatever I want. And it's the same mantra that the 21st century cultural progressive society that we live in sings. Captured in a song by the Soup Dragons where it said, I'm free to do what I want any old time. Now, you'll notice that Paul doesn't reject these statements out of hand, but he qualifies them. So he says, yes, it is true that the gospel is not a straitjacket. In Jesus, we do have freedom. We've been set free to be our true selves, but... Christian liberty is not licentiousness. It's not, whoa, brother, grace means that anything goes. No, Christian freedom is only found, Paul is going to tell us, under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And it never contradicts what it means to be united with Jesus. So usually when we have a particular situation, we ask the question, is it right or wrong? And Paul says, actually, better to ask, is it helpful? Is it beneficial? So in response to the all things are lawful for me, he says, but not all things are helpful. The implication is, yeah, some things might be permissible. You might have a certain degree of liberty, but that doesn't mean that it's helpful to you. Now, he's not making he's not saying in that that prostitution is permissible. He's just widening and broadening the principle at the moment. Yeah, we may have liberty as Christians, but is it helpful? And behind that question of helpfulness is this. Will it make you more like Jesus? Will it deepen your relationship and fellowship with him? And will it help or will it hinder the corporate witness of the church in the world? Is it a helpful thing to be doing? But then he also says, well, it might be lawful, but I won't be enslaved by anything. If it's something that you can that you choose to do, make sure that it doesn't dominate your life. Make sure that it doesn't master you or control you or trap you in its way of thinking and a way of behaving that squeezes Jesus out from the center of your life. If it's something, even good things, that somehow call your attention and your affections and your allegiance and your obedience away from Christ to that thing, then you're no longer free. This could be work. This could be sports. This could be hobbies. This could be family. This could be sex. This could even be Christian ministry or serving in the church if we love and serve those things more than we love Jesus. Paul says it is possible to be dominated even by good things in the name of freedom. But that doesn't mean that we're living as Jesus intended. Then in verse 13, he deals with this saying, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food and God's going to destroy both of them. And he said, in other words, the Corinthians were using this to say, Listen, if you've got an appetite for something, go ahead and satisfy it because it doesn't matter in the end because we're going to end up in dust. And so the Corinthians were saying, eat what you want to eat whenever you want to eat and sleep with whoever you want to sleep with whenever you want to do it. It's just part of the natural order of life. And the body's, what's the body anyway? We're just going to end up as dust. And this idea was shaped by the Greek philosophy that the body, your, your flesh and bones didn't really matter. That, that your body was just a shell or a house for the most important bit of you, which is your eternal spirit or soul. And so they said, protect that, 
but this shell, this thing that houses your body, don't worry about what you do with it. Do with it what you like. But Paul says, no, no, no. The body, this is verse 13, it's not meant for sexual immorality. It's not even meant for food. It's meant for the Lord. And the Lord is the Lord of your body. And so Paul says, no, contrary to the Greek philosophy that your body doesn't matter, no, the body matters. It's not valueless. It's not just some transient container for your eternal soul. Jesus has invested great value in your bodies. And he tells us how, and that's because God raised Jesus from the grave and gave him a resurrection body and patterned after that, God will one day raise us from the dead and give us resurrection bodies. So our bodies matter. What we do with our bodies matters to Jesus. It matters to God because our bodies are not just temporal shells. They're part of his eternal redemptive plan. Ever think about that? What you look at in the mirror is going to stare back at you for all of eternity. Sorry about that, Nick. Our bodies matter. What we do with our bodies are important because our bodies display a visible, concrete evidence of our obedience to God every day. So he's addressing this specific situation, but then Paul uses the cavalier kind of Corinthian attitude towards sex to make his main point in verse 18. And this is the timeless, eternal truth for us this morning. Verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee, it's a command. It's not just good human advice, it's a command. And to help us to understand it, we need to ask three questions. First one is this, what is sexual immorality? In the modern world, the definition is to have an affair or to commit adultery. It means having sex with someone who's not your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your partner. That's how the world defines it. And yet the biblical definition is much, much broader. The Greek word for sexual immorality is the word poinia. And it's a broad category. It's a catch-all term for a variety of illicit activity. So it could include these. And I apologize ahead of time, but I think we need to be clear about what some of these are. So it includes this. Adultery, extramarital sex, sex before marriage, any kind of sex outside of marriage, homosexuality, prostitution, pornography, orgies, touching, masturbation, flirting, fantasizing, innuendo and indecent talk, and any other sexual activity prohibited by the scriptures. The simplest but by no means comprehensive definition would be this. When Paul is talking about sexual immorality, he's saying it's any and all sexual activity outside of God's design for marriage between one man and one woman. Okay, so that's it. So it's quite broad. Okay. Now, secondly, what does it mean to flee? Okay, what does it mean to flee? Well, the Greek word here for flee means run away. All right. Not complicated. It doesn't mean reason with it, it means run away from it. It doesn't mean resist it, it means run away from it. It doesn't mean dabble with it, it means run away from it. It doesn't mean experiment with it, it means run away from it. It doesn't mean flirt with it, it means run away from it. It doesn't mean negotiate with it, it means run away from it. It doesn't even mean fight it. It means run away from it. Okay? The gift of sex 
that God has given is to be embraced and enjoyed by husband and wife in the context of a monogamous marital relationship and we are to flee from all other alternatives. As I was studying this, I was reminded of the story in Genesis 39 of Joseph. Do you remember Joseph? He's mistreated by his brothers. He's sold into slavery. He ends up in Egypt in the house of Potiphar, who's a high-ranking sort of Egyptian official. And one day, he's in the house alone with Potiphar's wife, and she makes advances on him. She offers him an indecent proposal. And what does he do? He legs it as fast as he can from the house. He flees. Without any hesitation, he gets out of there as fast and as soon as possible. That's what Paul has in mind here in verse 18. Now, not to flee is also illustrated in the scriptures in Proverbs chapter 7. Now, Proverbs chapter 7, we have Solomon, a father, pleading with his son to pursue godly wisdom. And the father, Solomon, depicts folly, the opposite of godly wisdom, as an adulterous woman. And this woman is in the streets and her siren call invites this young man to follow her back to her home and to her bed. And the man hears the call and he's seduced by her and he follows her and he falls into her trap. He falls into her bed and it leads to destruction. Solomon says, giving in to folly, this adulterous woman costs you your life. He didn't run this man and he was ruined. And that's an illustration of what happens if we don't flee. There are few forces in life that are as powerful as sexual arousal. It's like a, a fierce forest fire. Do you remember the TV from last year when we were watching the Australian or the Californian forest fires? And you see these things, they're easily lit, but they're almost impossible to extinguish. Sexual arousal is like that. And when faced with a destructive forest fire, what do you do? You jump in your car and you drive away as fast as you possibly can to save yourself. That is what Paul is talking about here, running from your life. To flee means to put as much distance as you can between yourself and temptation. To flee means being careful about what you watch, about the websites that you surf, about what you listen to, about what you read. Don't believe the lie that you need to engage with something on the TV or in a film or in a book or in music in order to be, to be able to engage the culture. No, 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 no. God says flee. You've got to trust his word. Fleeing means being diligent not to put ourselves into situations where temptation might prove too strong for us to resist. It means being vigilant with our kids, with our families, with our social media accounts and who we follow, what we look at, with our text messages, with our eyes and with our hearts. And it means doing that all of the time. So my suggestion is please take a stock check, do a stock check of your life and ask, just ask yourself the simple question, am I different from the world? Am I different from the world in this? And I think it's important that we do this because I think many of us have become numb to the poison that the world is offering us to drink. And we've got to align ourselves with God's word rather than with the culture. And if you are here and you're engaged in some form of sexual immorality that needs to stop, then God's word says flee. If you've allowed a friendship or a working relationship to develop into a, a, an inappropriate level of intimacy, flee. If your thought life roams into sexual fantasies that are fed by unhelpful books or films, flee. If you've allowed pornography to get a hold of you and you keep going back to those same explicit sites, flee. That's what God says to us this morning. 
Sexual sin is not the worst sin, it's not the unforgivable sin, but the consequences and the damage of sexual sin often reverberate more through our physical lives than any other sin. Maybe a child will be born in that context. Maybe we'll con contract a STI. It might break our marriages or our families apart. It affects our emotional lives. It, it, in, it increases feelings that we've been used or that we've been rejected. It affects us relationally into the future where we perhaps hold back from proper relationships for fear of being hurt after past bad experiences. And it can affect our spiritual lives where we feel dirty before God and we need to hide from him. God's standard for sex is, is not preserved by cowardice, but by courage. And I think fleeing is not given, uh, fleeing as a strategy is not given the, the kind of the credit that it deserves, okay? Think about this. Would someone suggest that you put your head in the mouth of a lion and just pray that you won't get it bitten off? We'd all say, that's ridiculous, that's crazy. Don't do that. It's the same thing here. We should be pre prepared as Christians to take determined and decisive and radical action even if we end up looking weird or foolish to the world. And when it comes to sexual sin, the world makes it look normal and it makes God's ways look stupid and strange. And we as Christians should choose stupid and strange in the eyes of the world. Because what has Paul already said to us in verses, in Corinthians 1 and 2, chapters 1 and 2, he said, the wisdom of this world is empty, it's foolish, it leads to destruction, but the wisdom and the power of God is true and powerful and freeing and gives you life. This is not subscription to the purity culture. If anybody knows what I'm talking about, this is purely obedience to God's word. And if you're struggling with sexual sin right now, and let me just say, that's not just a male problem. Most of us males go, oh. And most of the females might go, he's preaching at them again. No, this is for all of us. If we're struggling with sexual temptation and sin right now, or if we're struggling with prior, past sexual sin and guilt that we just can't shake off that's making us feel depraved and wretched and sinful, then God's word says, flee from it today. Not flee from the church, not flee from relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ, but flee from sin and flee to Christ. Flee to Jesus, who is, as Hebrews 4 tells us, he's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet remained without sin. And this one who was tempted and can sympathize and yet remained without sin, he loves you and he loves me and he laid down his life for you and he laid down his life for me and he shed his blood for you and he shed his blood for me to free us from every sin, including sexual sin. His death has freed us from the penalty of sin. It's freed us from the power of sin. And he can redeem anybody who falls into sexual sin. And he also promises us to be with us. He's given us his Holy Spirit to live with us, to empower us, to help us, to put to death the remaining sin in our lives. Some of us think that sexual sin is an obstacle, obstacle to God's grace. That is a lie. Some of us think that there is no way out, that we're trapped. That is a lie. Jesus offers us true freedom. 
we just got to confess our sin and bring it to the light. We've got to repent and receive his forgiveness. And then if you do that, get help from someone in the church. Get help from a faithful brother or sister in Christ who can walk with you, who can hold you accountable, who can pray with you and who can point you to Jesus. And ultimately, remember what Paul said in verse 11 of this chapter. Do you want to just flick your eyes up to verse 11? Paul says, as after listing off a bunch of sins, he says, you know, there was sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, stealing, greed, drunkenness, reviling, swindling. Some of you were like that, but you were washed. The stain of your sin has been washed away by Jesus' blood. You were sanctified. That means you have been set apart by God. He claims you as his own. You belong to him now. You've been justified. All of the charges against you have been removed. You've been declared righteous. The guilt has been, you've been freed from guilt and you've been made right with God. Let those truths sink in again this morning. And then hear what Jesus says through the words of Paul in Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The third and final question that we need to ask is why? Why should we do this? Why should we flee from sexual immorality? Well, Paul provides just three quick things. In verse 18, he says, flee from sexuality, from sexual immorality because sexual immorality is against your body. It's against your body. In verse 18, part B, it's against your body. The body that we have is not merely just flesh and bones and skin and organs. It, that word there encompasses, it means the whole person. It means your physical body plus your mind, plus your memory, plus your emotions, plus your conscience, plus everything that makes you you. Now, Paul is not saying that sexual immorality is in a special category that only involves the body. Loads of other sins involve the body. But what he is saying is this particular area of sin, there's nothing quite like it to involve all of us, the whole person. Because with sex, you're all, you're all in. You give your whole self away to the person that you're intimate with. And all sin harms the sinner, but sexual sin may do deeper harm and leave deeper scars than we imagine. So Paul says, flee it. He also says in verse 15 that our bodies are united to Christ's body. So that... When you engage in sexual immorality, whether it's prostitution that Paul mentions in verse 17 or anything from our earlier definition, it's as if the body of Jesus is engaging in sexual sin. If I was to rewrite this and put it bluntly of what Paul means, he would basically say this to us. If you sleep with someone who's not your spouse, it's just as if you're dragging Jesus into bed with you. Such is the union between Christ and his people. When you put your body, your hands, your mouth, your eyes, your sex organs where they don't belong, you're putting Jesus where he doesn't belong. If you can't picture Jesus with a prostitute, or if you can't picture Jesus in front of online porn, or if you can't picture Jesus being promiscuous, then you shouldn't put yourself there either. Because you're joined to him. You've been literally glued together with him. That's what the word joined means. And so how can you join and glue yourself to someone else in sexual immorality. Because in doing so, you're basically saying Jesus is joined in that sin too. And that's serious. Sin against the body. So instead we are to flee. Secondly, he says in verse 19, we flee it. Why? Because our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. 
In the Old Testament, the temple was God's dwelling place. It was, it was holy. He dwelt in the holy of holies, the most holy place, which was that small internal part of the temple, separated by the curtain, coated in gold. It was the place where only one person, one time a year, the high priest could go on the Day of Atonement. And that covered and carrying the blood of sacrificial animals. But now Paul tells us, and the rest of the New Testament supports this, in Jesus Christ, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You and me, not just as a church, but individuals, as our body. He lives within us. It's not Jesus with you by your side. It's Jesus in you. He's in you. And so just as Old Testament Jews were super careful to protect the holiness of the temple, they didn't want to defile God's holiness with uncleanness and sin. So we as Christians must be super careful not to defile God's temple, our bodies through sexual sin. Instead, we must preserve our bodies and protect our bodies for the exclusive use and service and worship of the God who saved us. So that's why we should flee. And then finally, Paul says, why should we flee? Verse 20, verse 19 and 20, because you are not your own. You were bought with a price. It's common in our world on the TV or in the internet or magazines or on YouTube to hear people say, it's my body, it's my choice. My body, my choice. Or maybe you've heard this one. You know, if I can't express myself how I want, then you're denying me as a real person. And Paul would say, no. God did not give you a body so that you could express yourself. Thanks, Madonna. You know, no, no, no. God gave you a body so you would glorify him. And sexual sin is a betrayal of the purpose for which we were made. We were not made for sexual progressiveness. Sexual progressiveness is not actually freedom, as the world would have you believe, but slavery to its demands for conformity to its definitions and standards. It's a demand to believe the lies of the world, the devil, and the flesh. It's not freedom. Freedom is found in this. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And the, the language of price there should, should remind us of the Old Testament idea of redemption. Perhaps the story of Hosea and Gomer in the Old Testament. Remember that story? God commands the prophet Hosea to marry a woman who has of ill repute. She's a, a prostitute. She's a reputation for unfaithfulness. She's a woman of promiscuity, and he's to marry her and have kids with her. And so he does in obedience to God. And then Goma lives up to her reputation. She spurns Hosea's love. She goes off with other lovers. She ends up being unfaithful, and she ends up in slavery. And God commands Hosea again. He says, go out, go back to your wife. Purchase her back from slavery, even at great cost to yourself, and redeem her and restore her. And that image, that story in the Old Testament is a picture of what God would do to redeem and restore his people from our spiritual adultery and unfaithfulness to him. God has paid the price for, to free us from sin and bondage. He's paid the price to free us from the power and the penalty of sin through the unimaginably high cost of Christ's own blood. And the result is that our bodies do not belong to us. This is not belonging to me. We're not our own. We no longer are the captain of the vessels of our, of our bodies. Jesus has commandeered the ship. 
And he knows better to set how he knows better how to sail than anybody else. So Paul says, your body is not your own, it belongs to Christ, so flee what is in opposition and contradiction to Christ. Glorify God in your bodies through pursuing obedience and sexual purity. You know, God is not interested in just Sunday Christians. He's not interested to say, you just put your Christianity in a box marked Sunday and leave it on the shelf Monday to Saturday. He says, no, I want all of your life and every part of your body and every day of your week and every area of what you do every day. And true obedience and glorifying God is, is not simply seen in how loudly we sing at church or how fervently we pray. No, true spirituality, true obedience and true glorifying of God needs to be seen and worked out in the details of everyday life. As Paul says in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2, we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Whether that be at home, at school, in the college, in university, at the office, at the factory, at the pub and in the bedroom as well. Holiness is not just fleeing from sin, it is striving to honour God in all that we do. Glorify God with your body. Let's pray.